Well, Covenant, it's good to be with you, and that's loud. All right. It's good to be back after several years away. I was last in Chattanooga a week before the world shut down. So let's knock on wood and say a prayer and hope that this goes better this time, right? Um, we've been through a season where, in many ways, things you might take for granted, things you might lean on, have been taken from us. Faces, proximity, the ability to travel easily and get together, whether it's to that funeral or that wedding, that vacation, or that visit with that loved one. And isn't it so good as we start to experience things again, things that we may have taken for granted, things that have been wrenched from us for a time, and things that we come with new appreciation and delight to as we find them again. And uh, this morning, I want to introduce you to one of those things, a treasure of the Christian church, a song of God's great love that for centuries was the melody of Christian women and men as they thought about Jesus' face and His care for them, but a song that has been forgotten, marginalized, as at least one scholar's put it, decanonized and forgotten in so much of our contemporary spirituality. And so I want to do the somewhat absurd and look at the entirety of the Song of Songs with you in about 20 minutes. As we look at it, I want to consider this song as a song of God's great love, a song not only that we're called to sing and to say before God and others, but most powerfully, a song that God sings over you, a song that God uses to express His delight, to declare His devotion to His people, to show us something profound about His heart and His commitment to His children. I think there's four things you ought to know about this song and through it of God's love. First, it's a song for this season. I'm a Florida man up here, so I'm embracing a moment of autumn. It's 85 at home, but I'm not speaking about this season of the year. I'm speaking about this season of your lives. Origin of Alexandria, a third century pastor and teacher said that you shouldn't read the Song of Songs until you have studied and lived Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. He wasn't ruling it out of bounds like we might as if it were PG-13 because there's a little too much discussion of body parts or the like. He was getting at the need to grow and develop as women and men, the need to experience things so that you're ready for what something is meant to be. And he meant what he said. You've got to go through the process of learning how to live as a responsible adult, how to navigate life in all its challenges. You need to live into the wisdom of Proverbs. And I suspect that you all are folks who've learned and are practicing what it means to exercise responsibility, to take control of much of your own destiny as you think about majors and vocations, as you think about friendships and commitments, as you think about priorities in a future. But Origen said you also need to go through the book of Ecclesiastes because you need to be reminded that however good you are at navigating this campus and however, however good you will be at navigating the job market, you won't find satisfaction that lasts. 
You won't find happiness there that truly delivers. You will sooner or later receive the gut punch of disillusionment. Those good things that are so substantive for a while, they will prove to be like fog that was so thick a couple hours ago and is gone. And you're in a season of life where I trust disillusionment will hit at some point. You'll learn something of a parent, of a pastor, of a church, and it'll make it mighty hard to keep on. You'll experience the disappointment of pursuing something and putting yourself on the line and finding that at times none of us win. We all lose and experience rejection. Dreams are dashed. You're at the season of life where you're learning to navigate things responsibly, as in Proverbs, and you're learning to experience disappointment and frustration, as Ecclesiastes speaks of so profoundly. And so, friends, I suggest Song of Songs is just for you. Song of Songs is a song for this time, and it warns us don't come to it too quickly. Regularly, she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Friends, have you, have you leaned into responsibility, and have you tasted the first fruits of disappointment and frustration? Are you finding that appetite for something more substantive, something more lasting, something worthy of your all? your very life, then this song and that love are for you. Secondly, though, it's a song specifically about God's great love. It begins with that title, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, and it speaks of a love that is better than wine. Think about songs. We sing when we're down, and we sing when we're riding high. Many of you have been on fall break. You've experienced the joy of getting away. What is more delightful than the open road song? As you're on that road trip, as you're exploring, as you're getting away from what's tired you, from what has perhaps beaten you down, and you're with loved ones and friends, and you are able to let loose in song on the highway. What is more delightful than that? Or you think of rallying your team, singing your school on, participating in the, the call of the crowd as you cheer on those that you care about so very much, what lifts us up in that way. We sing when we are so delighted. Friends, there are great songs in the Bible. Miriam sings of triumph and deliverance. Hannah sings of provision and mercy. Mary sings that highest of songs, the great Magnificat. And of course, the whole Psalter is full, not just of words we can say to God, but of songs that Jews and now Christians raise their voices with. But this, above and beyond all of those, this is the song of songs. You know that language, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the holy of holies. When the Bible speaks in this way, it's speaking superlatively. It doesn't deny there are many kings, 
God is the greatest and supreme over all of them. There are many lords and power brokers out there, but this one alone is unmatched and unsurpassed. There are many holy places, but that was the holy place where God's glory rested in its thickness. And there are many songs, brothers and sisters, but this is the song of songs. This is the song that speaks through the figure of a man and a woman of God and His love for His people. God and His care for Israel, Christ and His devotion for His church. This is the song that speaks of what we're ultimately made to find our joy in, our satisfaction in. And so I ask you, do the other songs last? Do the other songs really get at what's aching in your heart, your yearning for significance, your desire for peace, your itch to find something beyond yourself? Are you ready to hear a song of the ultimate love, of God's greatest favor, what Rabbi Akiva would call the holy of holies of Holy Scripture, the highest and most beautiful description of God's care? Well, third, we see that this is also a song of grace, and you see it right off the bat. The bride, she speaks, she declares her desire for the king to kiss her, to be with him, And the very first thing that she says of herself in verse 5 is that she is very dark but lovely. She has spoken of her longing to be with him. She has asked him to invite her to be in his inmost presence, and she then confesses that she is very dark but lovely. And there's profound truth there for you and for me, friends. In saying she's dark, she's not addressing race skin color. She's addressing class and situation. She is the Shulamite from the field. She is a woman of the ordinary way. She is someone who would have been working in the fields, and now she is speaking of Solomon, the king's son. Now she is speaking of a love with the highest, the ultimate power broker, the household of the king. She's declaring that though she is the unlikeliest of people, she has been brought into the ultimate of places and relationships. And so she confesses her own insufficiency. She names her lack of pedigree and potential. She names her lack of merit and achievement. And she celebrates and revels in the fact that she is nonetheless lovely in the king's eyes. It reminds me of the words of Martin Luther at the end of his Heidelberg Disputation when he speaks of how the love of man, it finds what is pleasing to it and thus loves it, but the love of God, it creates rather than finds that which is pleasing to it. Friends, where do you feel that you lack the pedigree? Maybe you're not from the right denomination. You didn't grow up doing the right religious exercises. You don't know all the jargon that gets thrown around, and you feel like you are an imposter. Perhaps you see your roommates, your hallmates, they've all got a plan, and you feel as though you are moving from class to class and scarier from major to major. 
You're not meriting it. But friends, she speaks of how she's lovely in his eyes. She speaks of how he longs to kiss her with the kisses of his mouth. She speaks of how his favor creates and doesn't find that which is lovely before him. Reminds us that God's love is a love that is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Whatever marked your GPA last term, whatever relational squabbles happened as you re-entered the dorm in the last few days, whatever it may be, it doesn't fate you to being apart from God. Whatever it may have happened, it doesn't somehow mean that you're beyond the bounds of His love. Because that which is dark, that which is unlikely, that which is working in the field is that which He makes lovely and brings in to His house. And that brings us to the fourth and final thing I want to reflect on for just a few longer minutes. This, friends, is a song of glory. Song of songs, it raises our defenses for a number of reasons. First, because we don't tend to talk about body parts in church. And you hit sections of this book where it starts naming things, and we move from eyes and ears to necks and breasts, and that gets a little strange when professors are in the room and the like, and I get that. Second, because many of us, not all, but many of us grew up in a world very different from that one. I'm a city kid who has always lived in cities, and so I don't especially identify with comparing my wife's teeth with that of use, right? I'm not going to use the poetry that appears in the Song of Songs. I have to trust that this would have been heard as somehow positive, encouraging, as opposed to strange or insulting. That's a, that's a leap for some of us. So I'm going to learn spiritual lessons here, but I'm not going to take my romantic lines directly from most of the Song of Songs. But friends, I think there's a third thing that we rarely face that's actually the real scandal, and it's where the real, the real bite of God's love here comes in. The Song of Songs is so shocking, not for what she says of him, that he is handsomest among men. He is wet and ruddy. He's one among 10,000, and she can recount the glories and goodness of his character. That's not surprising that one of God's people would think God is glorious, that one of you might name God as good, that I might be able to speak of God's character and rejoice in it. What's startling is that here, a little bit in the beginning, chapter 1, verse 8, he calls her most beautiful among women. And in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, behold, you're beautiful, my love. You are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And then you get to chapter 4, verses 1 and following, and then to chapter 6, and again in chapter 7, and he gets mighty specific about the beauty of the woman. There's another passage that's oft overlooked in Zephaniah 3. It says, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He'll take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you but he will rejoice over you with singing. 
God will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. What does he sing but the words found in Song of Songs? And they are specific, and they are particular, and they, my friends, are delighted, and that's amazing news. God not only tolerates you, God revels in you. And God rejoices over you in song, not just because you're a human, not simply because you're a Christian in the generic sense, not simply because you're here at covenant. No, God names and sings the specificities of her body, and God delights in the contours of her character. And God looks at you, each and every one of you, and each and every part of you, and God is working out in Jesus Christ by that powerful resurrecting grace the beauty that God rejoices in. You are not an abstract being. You are not a homogenous human. You are not simply a generic Christian. You are a child of God, and He has a song for you. Now, we live in a world where we tend to fall in with the crowd. Even our protests fall in with the crowd. Amazingly, they all look the same, don't they? There was a big punk rock concert from when I was a teenager, and over 10,000 people there were in unison screaming, I'm not a conformist. Okay. I mean, you can do that if you want, I suppose, but we, we tend to view ourselves as part of the crowd, and we follow peer pressure and the like. What good news, though, to know that God knows every contour of your character. God knows every nook and cranny of your being. God knows what's been done to you. God knows what you have committed. God knows what potential lies in you, and God knows what limits there are that you keep butting up against. And God knows the gracious plan that was hatched from the very beginning and that runs through your story and that will see you to the end, and God sings. He doesn't tolerate you. He's not indifferent to you. He didn't, as a curmudgeon or a miser, finally agree to send the Son so that at least you wouldn't have to go to hell and He wouldn't have to waste His time punishing you. No, 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 no. God delights in you because in creating you as you are and in making you anew as He is, He is making you to be worthy of praise. He is fitting you to experience a bit of His glory. He longs each and every one of us to transfigure. I'm reminded of one of my favorite novelists, Marilyn Robinson. In her novel Gilead, she has the protagonist, the ailing pastor John Ames, say these few words. He says, the world can shine like transfiguration wherever you turn. You don't have to bring a thing to it. All it takes is the willingness to see, but who would have the courage to see it? I look at myself, and I don't tend to think glory. And I suspect you look in the mirror, and you think about frustration and failure and limit, and frankly, the mundane ordinary. What would it take to have eyes to see what God sings here, to know that 
their necks and eyes and ears and chests, and God rejoices in all the specificities that make you up. God delights in all the elements of your character, your story, your giftedness, your relationships. God sings in love over it. Often you hear the words of the great thinker and leader Abraham Kuyper that there's not a single square inch of this whole world but that Christ claims it as Lord. And it's crucial to see that that's true of you too. There is not one nook or cranny of yourself. There is not one specificity of your soul. There is not one contour of your character but that Jesus claims it as Lord. He made it all. He cares for it all. He graces it all. And friends, He rejoices over it all. Our God is a mighty warrior, and our God does not rebuke us anymore. Our God rejoices over us in song. What would it mean for you to step out this day into class? What would it mean for you to enter this weekend, all the interactions with friends and others? What would it mean for you to look to the future and where you might go and what you might do, knowing that God has delight? Not frustration, not a list of grievances, not indifference, but that He stands and He watches and He hears and He's present and He is your eternal heavenly Father. That He has come down and walked amongst us, that He can sympathize in the deepest way because He knows our condition which is our own. He is Jesus Christ, your elder brother and redeemer, your risen Lord. That as you feel the fear and anxiety and the shame and the disappointment, he knows because He dwells within you as the Lord and life-giving Spirit. Friends, what would it mean to know that watching over in us and praying for us and dwelling within us, God does so, not aloof and not indifferent, but devoted and committed and still further rejoicing and delighted in who He is making you to be. If you know that, you'll know that you can give your life away. If you know that, you'll know that you are not your own. If you know that, you'll know that you have purpose. If you know that, you'll have strength that comes from beyond. If you know that, you'll know that even the hurt and the pain, that's part of the story and eventually part of the glory too. If you know that, you can look at the person next to you and frustrating as your hallmate may be, you can see a bit of glory in them too. If you know that, friends, you come to know the song of God, and you and I can participate in singing that praise and that glory together. Let me ask you to pray with me as we wrap up. Father, you are here. Where else could we go? You alone have the words of life. You alone are the mighty warrior. You alone long to redeem and revel in the goodness of your people that you have by your grace created and remade anew. We confess so often we are forgetful. We confess so often we're distracted. We confess so very often, Father, we think our past determines us. 
Our achievements define us and our failures constrict us. Let us hear your song, we pray. Let us join in your praise. Let us delight in walking with you again. May we know ourselves to be loved with a great and eternal love. We praise you, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forevermore. Amen.